and you don't feel like rejoicing, just have your friend tickle you until you snap out of it and feel like rejoicing. <laughs> okay, so um, I'll be uh, explaining a couple things from these passages in this teaching. Um, I'll make some personal applications, uh, what we can learn about Sukkot. We'll see how it points to Messiah. We'll see how there are some futuristic elements to this festival. If you have any questions or something, just shoot up your hand and, and ask those questions. We want to we wanna learn together. We want to we wanna move together in this. And uh, we're also going to learn some things about the traditional Jewish understanding of this festival. Of course, this is something that our Messiah himself celebrated and the early disciples. Uh, the context of John chapter 7 to John chapter 12, 10, the middle of John 10, is all in Jerusalem during this seven-day festival of Sukkot. And then in John 7, at the very high point of it, is when he stands up and says that, that he is the living water whom, whom, whom everyone can come and drink from. So um, anyway, I know that this is, a, this is a season that was very close to Messiah's heart, and it can be close to ours for that reason. We're going to get to know him better as we learn about this festival um, interestingly enough, there are four names for this festival in the scriptures. In Exodus 26, verse 16, it's called Chag Ha'asif. And a Chag is a, it's actually a verb. Can I show you what a Chag is? It's like to, uh, spin around like this. It means to like, uh, to go in circles. It means to be really, ha like you're spinning with joy, like you're, you're whirling with glee. Or maybe like you're just dancing in exuberation. Um, that's, the, that's the idea behind a chag. And uh, so, you know, the traditional greeting during festival times is chag, sameach. So we know what a chag is, it's a festival. What does sameach mean? Happy. Happy. Um, or, or joyous. We, we know the word simcha, that simcha is joy. Um, so chag, sameach is a happy festival. Can we all say that together? Chag Sameach. Yeah, so if you hear me saying that to you, I'm not just clearing my throat. Chag, you know. I'm uh, wishing you a happy festival. Yeah. And uh, So um, anyway, this, this festival is called Chag Ha'asif. Um, the festival of the ingathering. The festival of the harvest. And uh, it's the same root as Joseph's name. Can you hear Asif in there? Very closely related to Yosef. Um, why, why was Joseph named Joseph? Because uh, his mom said, may another son be added to me. So uh, this, is a, this is a festival about numerical multiplication. Um, this is a festival about the harvest. And uh, on a spiritual level, this is a time when we can be praying for the harvest. Not only for the, the physical harvest as the farmers bring in the crops, as the combines are out there with their lights in the middle of the night, you can see them as you drive down the highway, but, but this is the time to be praying that God will bring lost people into His kingdom. That people here in Prince Albert who are, who are disoriented, that they will find their bearings in Him. This is the time to pray for that harvest. Um, I, I, I think uh, even on a, on a spiritual level, when we as God's people begin celebrating some of these festivals, those spiritual elements are just going to connect. And uh, God is going to begin bringing, bringing people in. He's going to send out those spiritual combines. So uh, that's one of the names. The second one is Chag Ha Sukkot in Leviticus 23.34. Chag Ha Sukkot. I'm going to say each of those words and you translate it for me. Chag 
Ha the Sukkot. Booths, tents, tabernacles, that's all correct. Um, actually, in the New American Standard Bible, they translate that word Sukkot as like seven or eight different words. Check it out on eSword. Sometimes they translate it as pavilion or uh, hut or booth or tabernacle. It just depends on the context. It's a pretty broad word. I don't know if... I, I like the word pavilion. That sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? It's, it's like a, it's a royal tent. I don't know. I, I felt like we were in the king's royal pavilion yesterday night as we, as we sat in our big booth that we built and we just, we just had fun together and, and celebrated. It's like we were all guests of his majesty in his pavilion. Um, it's also in Leviticus 23.39 called Chag Yahweh. Chag Yahweh. And that is basically, it is just, it is his. It is Yahweh's. It is the Lord's festival. So this is the one that is most closely connected with him on a personal level. There's something about our God that is very personally communicated through this time when we begin to delve into its multiple layers of meanings. And uh, of course we learn a lot about Messiah from it too. And then finally, in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 2, it is simply called Hechag. It's called the festival. It's like the festival par excellence. It is, a, it is the crowning point of the year. A week long, a time of joy. Wow. So those are some names for this um, festival. Um, there's also a traditional Jewish term, I already mentioned it, Zman Simchatenu. This is the season of our joy. So for this upcoming week, you know, that's something that we can be remembering. Uh, let's look at Leviticus 23 for a second, and uh, we'll learn a couple things about this festival. And uh, maybe I'll mention something also from, uh, from Colossians, from uh, Paul's epistle to, shall we say, the Messianic congregation. In, uh, in Colossae. You know, as believers in Yeshua, if we want to, you know, we're followers of Christ, we're Christians, but if you want to use the Hebrew term, because we do have that Hebrew flavor, then, uh, then we're followers of Messiah, we're Messianic, right? So, you know, when you, when, you, when you look at it in that context, you could see that, yes, um, Paul was writing to a Messianic congregation. And uh, we read in Colossians chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 16. He says, therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a shadow of what is to come. But the body is of Messiah. So we learn a couple of things here. Firstly, apparently, at least some of these believers in Colossae were celebrating festivals like this one. Some, at least some of these believers were observing Shabbat. In fact, history suggests that probably the majority of them were. And it's interesting that Paul says, this isn't something, don't let people judge you about this. So, you know, that's something that we can do. If we're doing these things, Messiah is leading us to do them, we glorify Him through it, and it's a good thing. Um, secondly, we, we, we learn that these things are shadows of things to come. Paul didn't say these things are shadows of things that have happened. These things are shadows of future events. So there's a prophetic element to this festival that we're going to be looking at also. Um, that word shadow there, it means like an outline, a silhouette. This is profound. Um, if we want to have a look at like the, a look at Messiah, what does he look like? What, do, what is his outline? What is the silhouette of Messiah? Every one of these festivals has that element. And of course, who is the, uh, who is the body? Who is the, uh, the substance? It is Yeshua himself, isn't it? So um, I, I appreciate that fact. So yeah, let's, having said that, let's, let's look at Leviticus chapter 23 together. 
Leviticus chapter 23, verse uh, 34. I'll just uh, hit a couple key points with regards to this festival for us. Leviticus 23, verse 34 says that this is uh, on the 15th day of the seventh month, celebrate is the feast of booths for seven days to whom? So that's, that's the most simple thing. This is for him. This is something that we celebrate to him. He is the centerpiece of this celebration time. Um, verse 35, we read, On the first day is a holy convocation, a Mikra Kodesh. That's today. Here we are. Isn't that cool? The Bible is alive in our lives. Um, don't do any laborious work. So we take the day off so that we can celebrate together. Kind of makes sense. I appreciate the fact that we have a boss who is really uh, generous. You know, he says, you know, I just want you to take this day off so you can just rejoice together as families, get together as a community. I want you to just have some happy time. You know, that's the boss that we, that, that we serve. So that's, that's what he has to say. Um, maybe you could call it a biblical statutory holiday or something like that, hey? Um, verse 36, we read... Uh, Seven days present an offering by fire to Yahweh. So this is the time when we can let the fire of God burn in our lives. Uh, for those of us who, maybe our hearts have just grown cold, a little cold over the summer, maybe we don't feel as connected, this is the time when we can let Messiah come and just rekindle that fire of love in our hearts. And you know what? If we're feeling a little cold inside, we all feel like that sometimes. What do we do in situations like that? We don't try. We don't try and work something up, right? We just go to Him and we say, you know, Yeshua, thank you that you came to ignite the fire of God in my life. Thank you that you came to baptize me in that fire of the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would do that. And Yeshua, we do pray that, that you would do that anew for us during this season, that we, could, that we could bring an offering to you, our God, every day in the fire of your Holy Spirit, that fire from your altar. We pray that you would cast that fire in our hearts at this season. Thank you, Father. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Um, we also read that on the eighth day, which will be next Saturday, um, have an assembly, bring an offering by fire to him, um, take the day off. So we're going to be doing that also. It's going to be a very special event next Saturday also. We'll be doing some special activities, some uh, special prayers. We'll be finishing our annual reading of the Torah and uh, the Gospels and Acts, and we'll be starting anew. So we're going to have a real celebration next Saturday along those lines. I'm looking forward to that. In verse 40, it says, <laughs> to uh, take, some, take some different plant species, we'll be talking about those later, and it finishes by saying, Rejoice before the Lord. Rejoice before Yahweh your God for seven days. And then the next verse, it says to celebrate. Um, says that again in this passage, uh, Jewish commentators have pointed out that when it comes to Passover, it doesn't talk about rejoicing. When it, comes to, when it comes to Pentecost, to Shavuot, it says once that this is the time for rejoicing. But when it comes to this festival, at the high point of the year, it says three times that this is a time of joy. And uh, there, there, there's, a very, there's a very meaningful uh, lesson here. Um, when you look at the festivals, it's like the life cycle of the people of Israel, the people of God, that means all of us. Um, you could look at Pesach in terms of the life cycle paradigm as a birth. Passover was when the nation was born. They emerged from the, the womb of Egypt, shall we say. Um, they, they, they gained their own identity. Uh, that umbilical cord 
with the nation that had enslaved them was severed, and they came into the wilderness. So this was this was a birth. Um, they went to Mount Sinai, and they, there they received a massive revelation of the Almighty. There they received their mission as a people in God's Torah. You, you could say that this would be the, uh, the stage where you, you come to a point of self-consciousness, when you begin to question, why am I, why am I on this earth? What is my life's mission? And uh, then moving on, we have the festival of Sukkot. You could say that this is where the mission is accomplished, where you come into the fullness of what you were created for. And, uh, and, 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 and so it is in our lives too. So it is um, on a practical level. You know, when something is born in our hearts, it's a good start. We never despise the day of small beginnings, but it's only a start. You know, when, we, when that thing begins to grow and we receive our mission from God, that is a time to begin to rejoice. But when you receive the vision, that is only the beginning. That's the time to take that vision seriously, to go down from the mountaintop, to implement the vision, to build the tabernacle where God will dwell. And then, when that, when that cycle of events comes around to the point where you have accomplished the mission, you've come through on what God has called you to do, then you just cut loose. That is the time to rejoice. Like, wild exuberation. And I wonder if that doesn't apply to us as the body of Messiah also. Uh, you know, Yeshua said that when the bridegroom is taken from, from us as the disciples, we'll, we'll fast. It will be a, a very serious time. And, uh, and sure enough, when Yeshua ascended into the heavens, he, he, uh, he, um, that was like the birth of, uh, of his movement. Um, we, we received a mission at that point. And we're still in the midst of carrying out that mission on the earth. And it isn't until Yeshua comes back to dwell with his people. There we have that dwelling theme, that, that taking up the tabernacle theme. That is when we are going to cut loose in exuberation. When we are going to be able to say, we have accomplished our mission. We can stand before the Master. And hopefully he'll say, good job, I'm proud of you. So, you know, even, even at, this, at this stage in, in the body of Messiah, we are still in a time when we're a little more serious, when we're focused on the mission. We have a job to do. And we are anticipating the ultimate fulfillment of Sukkot when we are just going to be able to cut loose. When we will dance with our bridegroom upon his return. When we will celebrate wildly with him before the throne. I'm looking forward to that. So that, that's, a, that's kind of like a, an element that we learn from Jewish tradition and then we can apply it too to us as the body of Messiah. Um, I, uh, I really like this term. Uh, Deuteronomy 16 reiterates the whole Sukkot directives. And uh, one of the things it says in verse 5, I think it's in verse 5, is that you will be ach sameach. Ach sameach. So it doesn't only say that you'll be sameach, that you'll be joyous. It says that you will be ach. And that means like all together. It means only. So this is a time to be altogether joyful. A time to be exclusively joyous. To the exclusion of, of all else. And uh, let me ask you, do we experience that in our lives? No, not yet. But when our Savior returns, we will be ach sameach. We will be altogether joyful as we take up our, our permanent residence with Him in His royal pavilion. I'm looking forward to that. that just, it just gives me chills talking about the return of our Savior. Like it's something my heart so longs for. It's hard to even imagine, but it's going to happen. And uh, this festival gives us, it's like watching a trailer to a movie. It gives us those sneak peeks at what's going to happen, at the, at, the, at the beautiful story that's going to unfold at the return of our Savior. <laughs> um, this, whole, this whole thing about rejoicing, it reminds me of Paul in Philippians 4 verse 4 where he said, Rejoice in the Master always. 
Again, I'll say, rejoice. This guy was in prison when he wrote that. He was in dire straits. He was probably not very comfortable. Maybe he was really hungry. Maybe he only had one blanket and it was like five degrees outside or whatever. And you can just hear this like this senior apostle of Messiah saying, guys, we can rejoice in him. Wow. Um, there's, a beautiful, there's a beautiful line from the traditional Jewish prayers um, that is said in the evening. It's like, um, spread your, spread your, in Hebrew it's like, sukkah shlomecha. Spread your sukkah of shalom over us. Spread your shelter of peace over us. Um, that's something that's prayed regularly, but I think it especially applies um, during this festival. Um, it's kind of cool, you know, like the whole harvest thing. You know, we set up the sukkah yesterday together, and what did we hang in it for decorations? We hung fruit, didn't we? It's kind of commemorating the fruit harvest in Israel that happens at this time. It kind of reminds me of the fruit of the Spirit. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit. So this is truly a time to, to just get in the, the sukkah of Messiah's Shalom, hey? <laughs> I like that. Um, a couple other things we learn from this passage in verse 41 of Leviticus 23. We learn that this is a law forever. So this was not a temporary thing that was only in place until Messiah comes. This was something for all of God's people forever. He goes on to specify that throughout your generations. So as long as, as, long as the people of Israel are alive on planet Earth, as long as those generations of God's people continue, then this is for us. And I, I love how it's a generational thing. This isn't just something for the old folks. It's not just something for the younger people. This is like a time when all of us come together, when we celebrate as the people of God. And uh, I really felt that yesterday evening in the sukkah, even playing games, games like Do You Like Your Neighbor? I mean, we were really mingling, hey? That was, that was a great time. So I really, I, I see that element. Um, what's that? Yeah, it did warm us up. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, verse 42, it says to live in booths. Uh, specifically, it says all of your native born. So the citizens in the actual land of Israel are to live in booths. Why did he specify that? Yeah, that Mediterranean climate is a little more appropriate. You know, for those of us living in Saskatchewan, some of us actually camp out for the week of booths. But, uh, you know, when it's like minus five and it's snowing, it's just not the same as being in Israel in a nice warm climate. You know what I'm saying? So I just thought, man, God sure is kind to get, to specify that for us, isn't he? <laughs> My name's Israel, but hopefully I could still be exempt in Canada. Although I, li- I like to sleep in the sukkah anyway. Um, yeah, you know, another thing we, we can infer from that, though, is that the festival of booths isn't only for people in Israel. It's also for people in the exile, out here amongst the nations. Um, here's a couple interesting traditional Jewish understandings. Um, in, uh, in the Talmud in Sukkah 2a, it says, uh, leave your permanent residence and dwell in a temporary residence. So this is a time when we get out of our permanent residences and we uh, spend some time in a temporary one. Yeah. Um, there's another uh, traditional Jewish commentator that points out, you know, why didn't God say to do this in the middle of summer during a warm time? Well, the reason is because then people, then you, then people wouldn't know that you're doing it for Him. Everybody camps in the summer, right? You go camping. Who goes camping in the fall, in September, October? That catches people's attention. People know you're doing this for God. You're doing it because you love God. 
And maybe it gives us that special intent to go out and sit in our temporary residence to meet with him in a special way. Um, it's like, yeah, this is a lot of fun, but we're doing it for more than just fun. We're doing it because we want to encounter our awesome and majestic God. Um, there's an interesting rule given. This is a very compassionate rule in, in Jewish tradition also. In, in Asuka 26a, it, it says in Hebrew, er patur min hasuka. It's like uh, those who are distressed, they're released from the sukkah. So, you know, if the temperatures are less than expedient, um, if you're experiencing uh, is it incremental weather, I just learned this word recently. In, 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 yeah, incremental weather, right? Then, you know, you, you're released from this mitzvah, even in Israel. That's nice. I mean, who wants to sit in a dwelling that has an open roof when it's pouring rain on you, you know? I mean, man, I, I don't know about that. So anyway, um, another interesting uh, tradition in Sukkah 29a is mentioned. Uh, bring your nice furniture into the sukkah. You know, like your finest china, your nice dishes, fancy cutlery. Yeah, bring that in the sukkah. Like, uh, really fancy the thing up. E- eat in the sukkah, drink in the sukkah, spend your recreational time in the sukkah. And, of course, also engage in some deep Torah study in the sukkah. And of course, when we say Torah, we're referring to the Word of God, right? That's the traditional Jewish term for the Word of God. <coughs> Orthodox Jews, it's only referring to the Hebrew Bible, the, quote, Old Testament. But for us, this whole thing is the Torah. It is God's teaching, isn't it? So uh, those, are, those are some traditional Jewish things that are done in the sukkah. Hey. Would they stay in the sukkah for the whole week in Israel? Yes, a lot of people do. Um, the men especially will go and sleep in the sukkah. Sometimes the ladies will go sleep in the sukkah too. Um, and they'll go and eat their meals out there and spend as much time as possible. You know, it's a, it's a really fun thing actually. No, like you can go in your house, right? They go in their house to get stuff and whatever. But it's like you spend as much time in the sukkah as you can. Yep. And uh, here's the big question. Why? Why did God say to do this? And uh, thankfully, he actually like spelled it out for us. Verse 43, he said, So that your generations may know that I had the sons of Israel live in booths in Sukkot when I brought them out from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, your God. So this is, a, again, it's a generational thing, right? When we, when we think about transmitting our faith to our children, to our grandchildren, Sukkot is a, is a very valuable tool in that regard. It's fun. You go camp out in the Sukkah for a week. You remember your past as the people of Israel. Whether we be Jewish or drafted in, this is our past. And it's a time to remember that. Yes, there is blessing in it. That is very true. Let, let, me, let me offer something to you. This is an idea. It may be that God has things to teach you that, he can on, that you can only learn by living in a temporary dwelling for a week. You know, when you actually get into it, literally, you get into the sukkah, when you live in that thing for a week, God will teach you lessons that maybe you wouldn't learn just in your comfy home all week. You know? So, uh, hey, maybe we should all just go and like, um, crash at your place for the whole week. We'll all come and stay at the Kabastinskis at our community sukkah or something. I don't know about that, but you know, you might just want to go set up a tent in your backyard and just, just go and sit, sit in your tent with the Lord. Spend some time with Him. You know, let Him speak to your heart. It's like the secret place with Him, right? So it's a really, it's a really special. 
Um, here's, a, here's a quote from a famous rabbi named uh, um, Israel ben Eliezer. He's sometimes called the Besht. And uh, he says, I love the mitzvah, mitzvah of sukkah. I love this commandment of dwelling in a booth. A man can enter into it with his whole body, even with the mud sticking to the soles of his boots. So, uh, you know, like, we are, we are in the midst of Shabbat, right? We are actually in the midst of a mitzvah, a commandment. Um, Shabbat is a 24-hour block of time. It surrounds us. It's all-encompassing. You don't go, go to Shabbat. Shabbat comes to you. It's like God. You just can't get away from it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is the concept of the Sabbath. But it's also the concept, you know, that's, that, that's in time. But the whole concept of a sukkah is in space. It's all-encompassing. When you go sit in the sukkah, it's like, a, it's like a picture of being surrounded by the presence of God. The all-encompassing Shekinah, His glory. Yeah. So I, yeah, you know, that rabbi really liked that. He liked how he could go in there with, with his muddy boots and, uh, and just be totally enveloped. <laughs> you can be real with God. You can go in the sukkah with your muddy boots and He loves you. Um, Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, also gives a directive. It says, all the males are to go up to Jerusalem for this festival. And then he says, uh, don't come reikam. That word reikam means literally empty. Don't come empty. Uh, it's translated, don't come empty-handed. So, so bring an offering. So, you know, this is a great time to be, like, super generous. Firstly, with the Holy One. To be generous with our affections to Him. To, to, to pray prayers of adoration to our Savior, to, uh, to come with an offering. And also, you know, it's a great time to give gifts to each other, to uh, give to the poor, to uh, make contributions to uh, organizations that are doing good work for the kingdom. Um, that's another concept that, uh, that can be implemented at this time. Um, here's, here's an interesting insight. In uh, Numbers 29, Numbers 29, <laughs> it gives this long list of offerings that were done in the temple during Sukkot. And uh, specifically, it, there are quite a few bulls that are offered. And it goes into uh, a lot of detail with these bulls. Numbers 29 verse 12 um, is where it begins. It says to offer 13 bulls in verse 13. Verse 17, offer 12 bulls. Um, Verse 20, offer 11 bulls on the third day. Verse 23, offer four bulls on the fourth day. <laughs> and uh, the rest of the chapter almost repeats itself, except for saying, and, uh, and offer this many bulls on that day, and then one less on the next day, and one less on the next day. And uh, I mean, I don't know, I've read this passage, when you read the Torah in Hebrew, it's a little repetitive especially, right? It's like, God, I mean, why did you why did you choose to why didn't you just say offer one less bull on each day? Why did you take half a chapter to to say this? I mean, this gets a lot of airtime. I why why didn't you um, I don't know put something else in here that's more meaningful to my heart? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Maybe there's a reason for it though. Here, here's here's something interesting. Um, the rabbis counted the number of bulls offered during Sukkot. And do you know how many they amount to? 70 bulls. Does anyone know what the number 70 represents in the Word of God? It represents the nations. That's correct. Um, in uh, the early chapters of Genesis, it lists the sons and grandsons of Noah. And there are 70 of them. And it says that it's from these men that the nations of the earth spread out. So when you see the, the number 70 in Scripture, you know it's talking about the nations. What do we learn from this about Sukkot? What we learn is those 70 bulls represent the 70 nations. Sukkot has an international 
themes. Uh, Sukkot is a time when the, the Jewish people pray for the nations. It's a time to remember that the temple of God is a house of prayer for all the nations. Yeah. So uh, really, this is also an introductory time. You know, there are times when it's more like focused on Israel. This is the time that's focused on the nations. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, we're going to read about that in a prophetic passage in Zechariah in a couple minutes. Um, there also, um, you can see that this, this is a picture of uh, that period of time when history is beginning to wind up. Uh, we read in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, that uh, Jerusalem is going to be trodden underfoot by the nations for a period of time. But that period is going to end. It's when like the nations have their run and uh, then they get, begin to get reined in and God's people Israel, which, is, which includes the body of Messiah, they begin to rise to preeminence again in God's uh, salvific plan, His plan of salvation. Uh, we also... Yeah. Yes, I believe it has already begun. I believe it happened as early as 1967, 1948. Uh, the Jewish people began to come to the forefront again in, uh, on the international scene. Also, you know, in the, in the body of Christ, we began to wake up to the fact that God isn't finished with Israel. His covenants still stand. I mean, duh, that's exactly what Paul said, right? In Romans 9-11. Um, in Romans 11 specifically, he talked about how a partial hardening has come upon Israel so the fullness of the Gentiles can come in. After which, what's going to happen? All Israel will be saved. A Redeemer will come to Zion. What do we learn from this? Um, again, we learn that Sukkot is a picture of that. The bulls representing the nations are diminishing. There's a countdown. And Israel becomes, comes to the forefront again in the plan of God. And uh, that's where we're at, I believe, on his prophetic timetable. And that is only going to escalate. Uh, that's why there are congregations that we are here to stand with Israel. We are here to represent Messiah to the Jewish people. It is like, uh, you could, uh, I'll give you a parable. There was a farmer um, over in the Blaine Lake area where we're from. And uh, it was like August and the crops were beginning to ripen. Uh, the canola had already finished uh, blossoming and it was almost ripe. And uh, he had, his, he had his, his massive palm lines, he'd just gone, but he didn't have any granaries. He didn't have any granaries. And what did he set about doing when he knew that the harvest was coming? He built some granaries, because who, who likes to dump the crop on the ground, right? He, he, he said about building granaries. And I believe that on God's prophetic timetable, He is building granaries to prepare for the harvest of the people of Israel that are coming in. We are a granary. He is building a granary here. We are a place where when God brings Jewish people to Messiah, like our friends, for instance, that we recently met, you know, when they come to Messiah... We're here to receive them. We're here to say, you know what? Coming to faith in Christ doesn't have to make you less Jewish. It actually completes your Jewishness. It makes your Jewishness truly meaningful. Yeah. Yeshua makes the Word of God come to life. That's why we're here. That's something that we remember during Sukkot. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting story. It's a traditional Jewish story in, uh, in Avodah Zarah 3a. It's a story about... Uh, and this is like a metaphor, right? This isn't a literal story. This isn't literally going to happen. It's, it's there to like communicate an idea. But in, in the story, like, uh, you know, God winds history up and he, uh, he gathers all the nations before him to judge them. And he said, guys, uh, why, don't, why didn't you receive my law? You know, I offered my law in Mount Sinai. Why didn't you take it? I mean, my law is altogether righteous, you know? And, um, and they say, God, we didn't know. Uh, give us another chance and, uh, and we'll do it. We'll do it. Yeah, we'll do it. And he was like, okay, I'll, I'll give you another chance. 
I'm going to make it really simple. I'm just going to give you one commandment. Go and, uh, go and build a sukkah and celebrate Sukkot. And uh, so in the story, the, the Gentile nations go out and they, they build sukkahs. And uh, God causes his sun to shine really, really hot that week. Really hot that week. Like, man, uncomfortably. You know? And, uh, and the Gentiles, uh, they get really mad. And they all kick their sukkahs over and it's over. They storm off. And that's the story. <laughs> I mean, on a surface level, it's like, what's that about? But you just stop and think about this for a moment. Who built a sukkah? Who built a booth? And, uh, and it was really scorching. And then he got really mad. We read this book on, we read the book about this guy on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, last week. Jonah. Didn't he do that? Um, what's another, uh, what's another thing? You know, the book of Revelation, it talks about how God will cause the sun to scorch the planet in the future. It's gonna get really hot for a while. Yeah. And, uh, what does it say in Revelation? Men are going to curse God. They are going to be really mad at him. Uh, it's kind of funny how that happens. You know, atheists, people who don't even believe in God, when, when times get hard and crises happen, who gets the blame? The God who supposedly doesn't exist. You know, and that, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. But you know, what, 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 I, what I see in there is a challenge for us. You know, for those of us who are, who are coming to see the role that God's law can play in our lives as new covenant believers, there's a, there's a challenge to be sincere about it. You know, to stick, to stick with it through thick and thin. You know what? Hard times might come, but you don't give up. You don't kick your suka over just because God isn't doing what you want. You know what I'm saying? So maybe there's a lesson there for us. Yeah. I don't know. It's like, that's what I get out of it. Like these sto- stories like that, their metaphor is right. It's kind of like, what do you get out of this? What do you get out of this? So it's not like there's an authoritative interpretation or whatever. Okay. Um, here, here's an interesting connection. Uh, we read in Psalm 76 verse 2, I'm going to just start taking you through some scriptures that mention booths, that mention Sukkot in different contexts throughout the scriptures. Some of these wouldn't be immediately apparent to you because your Bible translation translates that word Sukkot in a variety of words. Like I had mentioned, the NESB renders it as pavilion, lair, uh, Sukkot, uh, dwelling, all of these different words, right? So I'm, I'm going to just take you on a little overview of some of these. Psalm 76.2, it says in Hebrew, Vayahi v'shalem umonato v'tzion. His tabernacle, his sukkah, is in Salem. His dwelling place also is in Zion. Did you get that? God has a sukkah. God has a sukkah. And where is his sukkah? It's in Salem, it's in Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, specifically, I'm sure this was referring historically to the gener- David's generation. But it's kind of fascinating that our God lived in the sukkah for a while. You know? I mean, our God did. I mean, like, he lives in the most respe- resplendent palace in heaven that you could ever dream of. And then he, he comes to earth and he lives in a temporary shelter. Wow. You know, you know that concept of uh, imitating God? You know, for instance, why do we do Shabbat? We do Shabbat because he did it first, right? The very first Saturday in world history, God took the day off. God rested from his work. And that's why we do it. We do it in imitation of him, right? What are some other examples? You know, our father, he's kind to everybody. He sends his rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And so, you know, we're kind to everybody too. It's kind of the idea, right? Um, Yeshua, he, he, did, uh, he did some of these things from the Torah. And so, you know, we do them too. We imitate him. So, uh, you know, if God lived in a sukkah for a period of time, maybe living in a sukkah is going to give us an understanding of something about Him. 
imitating the Father. Yeah. Um, also on another level, um, Jewish, Jewish commentary points out that uh, God had a sukkah in Zion. So you know when we build our sukkahs, when we sit in our sukkahs, it's like you have a connection point with Jerusalem. You could say that it's a biblical Zionist act to build a sukkah and sit in the sukkah. Yeah. It says something. It says whom you're connected with. It says who your God is. It's saying that my God is the God who set his name in Jerusalem, who uh, took up his glorious residence in Zion. That's who my God is. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll touch back on, on that in a second. Here, here are a couple interesting examples from history where sukkahs were happening. In Ezra chapter 3, it, it, sa- it says that the altar service was reestablished after that 70-year hiatus to Bab- Babylon. The altar service was reestablished in the seventh month in conjunction with Sukkot. So uh, there's something about this month on, the, on God's timetable. There's something about this festival. It's a time of um, renewed worship. It's a time when we can, let, we can renew our dedication to worship wholeheartedly before the throne. It's a time when we can let Him renew our hearts for prayer. Do any of you have a hard time praying on a regular basis? Like, do any of you kind of... Have you ever made a commitment? Let's say, like, you made a resolution you were going to pray every morning. And then a week or two later, it just wasn't happening. <laughs> oh, man. You know, like, for me, it's been a challenge. Getting married um, made it even more challenging. You know, I reached a point where I really felt called as a husband to lead my family in prayer every morning. That is challenging. I mean, you're dealing with, like, several people in a household with different schedules. People get up at different times. When you have a baby, it gets a little harder. I'm sure when we have more babies, it'll be even more harder. Um, but, you know, this is the time to stop and say, how am I doing in my prayer life? You know, for those of us who are fathers, who are husbands, how am I doing in leading my family in prayer? Do I lead my family in prayer on a regular basis? If I don't, now is the time to start. Tomorrow morning, that's the time to start. That's the time to start. You know? That's what I love about uh, some, of the, uh, some of the Jewish tradition of prayer. It just helps give some substance to our prayer life. It, helps, uh, it gives us some structure that can help us stay more regular in our prayer life. So um, this is the time to rebuild the altar. To rebuild the altar. Just like they did in Ezra 3. Mm-hmm. Pardon? Yes, the day does start in the evening. Started. Okay, great. Yeah, start a, start a renewed prayer life this evening. Hey, just jump on it, hey? Never mind waiting till tomorrow morning. Yeah, praying at supper time is an excellent time to pray. Yeah. In fact, you know, we, uh, you know, in the Christian tradition, we thank God for the food before we eat. And uh, that's a good thing. It says Messiah blessed God before breaking bread. But in Deuteronomy, it actually says to bless God after you eat. Yeah, and that's, that's what's done in the Jewish tradition. I know. Have any of you seen the, the grace after meals that are prayed in the Jewish tradition? It, it's quite lengthy. It takes at least five minutes to pray through. You just pray together for five minutes after the meal. It's a good time. You know, your tummy's full. You're able to actually just sit back and relax a little bit. Say a, like a longer thank you. So, you know, some of us might want to get in that groove, just praying together as a family after the meal. Um, yeah. Uh, another example is Nehemiah 8. Uh, Linda, Linda, you read that. When it's just, he said, rejoice. These people were like, they were brokenhearted. Because they, the, they heard the word of God and they realized what they were missing out on, what hadn't been taught to them. They were weeping. Can you imagine like an assembly of thousands of people weeping in repentance? And uh, 
And the elders said, guys, like, today is a day of joy. We found, the, we found the law of God. What a discovery. Let's rejoice together, right? God's joy is your strength. And uh, that's something that we read. And uh, in Nehemiah 8, it says that they, uh, they had some really nice food. Like they had a real feast, sweet drinks and things. And uh, it says that they sent gifts to each other. So again, this can be a time of generosity, of gift giving. Uh, it also says that they read from the law of God every day. So this especially is a time when we can, you know, maybe go sit in your sukkah for the evening and just read a passage from the scriptures. Yeah, study, study, study the, the holy Torah of God together. Here's an interesting passage uh, that mentions Sukkot. 2 Samuel 11.11 um, Uriah is one of my heroes. He was one of David's like inner circle of warriors. He was a bodyguard to the king. He was a dangerous man. And actually it says that he was a Hittite. That means that he came to faith in the God of Israel from a Gentile, like a really pagan Gentile background. Hey, Noble man. Um, here, here's a quote from Uriah. He says to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. In Hebrew it says, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in Sukkot. Sukkot. And my master Joab and the servants of my master are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. This guy was pretty gutsy. Did you hear what he just said to the king? This was the instance where like, David wanted to send Uriah home, um, see if he could, David, or Uriah would get his wife pregnant and cover up David's sin, right? So he says, you know what, Uriah, go home. Just go home and uh, have a nice time, you know? He even got him drunk. And uh, Uriah was so upright. He was such a man of valor. He said to the king's face, by your life, I'm not going to do this. Like, my general and uh, my fellow soldiers are out in the open field. The ark of God is in a sukkah. I'm not going to go home and have a good time. And so he went and he slept outside the king's door instead. And I just, I admire him for that. And then on the other side is David. I mean, David was like in a spiritual decline at that time. He was, uh, I think he was a bit of a slouch at that point. You know, he, he repented, he changed, right? But, uh I kind of, I kind of wonder, you know, if, if Sukkot is mentioned, if, what's our paradigm even for Sukkot? You know, uh, I, I, I see how we as the body of Messiah, we can be like King David and we can just stay in our comfortable residences, you know, we can just eat and drink and have a good time, um, while the people of Israel, our brethren, are fighting a spiritual battle. Well, they're out there on the front lines, when terrorists are blowing themselves up in Jerusalem on a regular basis. When, when Islamic nations are spewing vile hatred against Israel. You know, is this, is this a time to just be comfy and to relax? Or is it a time to be like Uriah and say, my brethren are on the front lines and I'm going to stand with them. You know, I, I believe that there's a prophetic call going out to the body of Christ. Start doing Sukkot just to say that you stand with Israel. It is a spiritual act. It is an act of intercession. You know, what if believers all around the world started doing Sukkot and just started going out to the Sukkot to say, I stand with Israel. The God of Zion is my God. I'm going to pray for the Jewish people today. Wow, that is a testimony. That would be a powerful testimony. And you know what? It's happening. Believers all over the world, they're saying, wow, you know, the feasts. There is something about the feasts. I've never done the feasts, but there's just something there. It's tugging on my heart. God's talking to me. I want to learn about these things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a spiritual awakening. And uh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe this explanation will give us some background to why there's this thing about the feasts that is just tugging at people's hearts. Yeah. 
Um, we already read the Jonah passage. It says in uh, Jonah 4 or 5 that he made a sukkah for himself. He sat under it in the shade. And he was just going to watch Nineveh burn. He was just going to sit under a sukkah and watch Nineveh burn. <laughs> Is that the right attitude either, hey? Just say, yeah, I got my comfy little thing. I'm in the sukkah, you know. Me and God, we're pretty tight, just him and me. And meanwhile, like the world around us is going to hell, you know. I don't know. I think there's a, there's a place for intercessory prayer in the sukkah also. Praying for a city, for a country. Yeah. That's what I, that's what I get out of that Jonah passage. Um, yeah, futuristic elements of Sukkot. Um, Colossians 2.16, like we said, Paul said, these things are shadows of things to come. So if you want an outline, a prophetic outline of the future, just start doing the feasts, and uh, it's going to be a real uh, enlightening experience for you. Um, here's, a pa- here's a verse from Hosea 12, verse 9. It's uh, the Almighty talking, it says, I have been the Lord, I have been Yahweh your God, since the land of Egypt. I will make you live in tents again, as in the days of the appointed festival as in the days of the Moed. Did you hear that? God said, just like he caused his people to live in temporary shelters during the Exodus, he will cause his people to have that experience again. When is that going to be? I don't think it's happened yet. We haven't seen something like that happen on a national scale. Uh, We read in Ezekiel 20, though. We read in Revelation 12 that there is going to be a time when God's people, the woman, goes out to the wilderness and she experiences what? Supernatural protection there. She experiences supernatural provision, uh, very similar to the Exodus, Exodus scenario. It, it could be that Sukkot is like a picture of the Great Tribulation time frame. Who's to say for sure? But when I read, when I read the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, I see that theme. When we, when we get out there in the Sukkah, you know what? We're actually in training. We're preparing for the future. Yeah, we're learning some valuable lessons for um, that time period before... Messiah's return. Uh, we also read in Genesis chapter 33, 16 to 17, it says, So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. Jacob journeyed to Sukkot, get that, Sukkot, and built for himself a house and made booths. He made Sukkot for his livestock. Therefore, the place is named Sukkot. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> so, when J- Jacob journeyed there, it wasn't called Sukkot, but he built Sukkot there, and then it was called that. Uh, what do we learn about that on a practical level? How does that apply to us? What it says is, Sukkot is for a people who have escaped Esau. Now Esau, biblically speaking, often represents like humanistic religion. Esau was hairy and red. Um, that represents humanistic religion. So Sukkot is for a people who have left humanistic religion behind. Dead works. You know, just going through the motions and doing the same thing and with your eyes crossed. Sukkot is for a people who are waking up. Sukkot is for a people who have encountered Esau and overcome Esau in their lives. Um, Sukkot is for a people who have wrestled with God, who have come through that dark night, who have received a new name, who have received the name Israel. You know what? God calls you Israel. If you are a Christian, God calls you Israel. That is your new name. And when we begin to understand the ramifications of our identity as the body of Messiah, guess what? We start to be like, you know what? If, if I'm part of Israel, maybe the feasts of Israel are for me. Maybe Sukkot is something I don't want to get into, hey? So we, we, see, we, see that, uh, we see that dynamic loud and clear in the life of Jacob, one of our forefathers in the faith. Sukkot is for people who are coming home to Israel. Uh, we also read in Exodus 12, 37 to 38, the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to what? To Sukkot. <laughs> About 600,000 men on foot, aside from the children. 
What do we get out of this? Again, Sukkot is for a people who have escaped the deception of Satan's world system. And I mean, that's not all, I, I, I almost don't want to say that. I don't know if I want to say it like that, because like, I, I don't have any chips on my shoulder, okay? But I mean, hey, there is some deception in the world system, okay? What did John say? Like, the whole world lies in the evil one. Um, you know, Pharaoh, the spirit behind Pharaoh is out there. He's still working to enslave us through addictions, through, uh, you know, through like, I don't know, um, false religion, through all kinds of things, right? So anyway, all that to say, Sukkot is for people who have escaped that and who are going to the wilderness to meet God. Sukkot is for people who are on their way to the wilderness to meet God. It's very romantic. He goes on to say, a mixed multitude also went up. A mixed multitude also made Aliyah with them. So you know, when we see this picture, yes, physical Israel was there, shall we say the ethnic Jewish people, but there was also a mixed multitude, people from the nations, that said, Yahweh is the true God, wherever Israel is going, I'm going with them. I want that inheritance too. Hey, you know what? That's us. That's us. That's the body of Messiah. And you know what it says? Sukkot is for people like that. Yeah. Um, we already read this passage from Amos, where he talked about raising up the fallen sukkah of David. Um, that's a passage that James, the brother of the master, quoted in uh, Acts chapter 15. Apparently he saw that happening before his very eyes, as Gentile believers from the nations were coming into the kingdom. Uh, there's some very powerful themes there also. What we learn from that is Sukkot is connected with David, with that restoration of the fallen Sukkah of David. Uh, we, we were talking about that on Yom Kippur. You know, the, 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 the Sukkah of David was where like, he put up a tent, and they put the ark there, and they had the, 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 uh, the priests worshipping 24-7 before that thing. And people could just come before the ark and worship the living God. Wow. It just in, in a simple way. And uh, that, that, that is something else that Sukkot represents. It also says that um, he'll raise up that booth, and then he says, and I'll wall up its breaches, I'll raise up its ruins, and I'll rebuild it as in the days of old. Why? That they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations, all the Gentiles who are called by my name. What did we learn? We learned that Edom represents like sometimes religion that people get stuck in. That isn't about God anymore. It's just kind of doing stuff. You know what I'm saying? And what does it say? It says that the whole idea of Sukkot is it's for a people who are going to go and take possession of that. Who are going to overcome that. And who are going to help people wake up to the reality of Yeshua and the relationship that we can have with Him. Yeah. That's what Sukkot's about. Um, there's another passage. We didn't read this one during our readings. Isaiah chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. This is like a graphic uh, illustration of the future. It says, When the Master has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord, then Yahweh, will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies... Mount Zion is a specific geographical location, okay? What is he going to create over there? A cloud by day, even smoke, and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. Sounds like the Exodus, doesn't it? Yeah. For over all, the glory will be a canopy. The glory will be a chuppah. How many of you have seen a chuppah, a canopy before? It's what couple, Jewish couples are married under, isn't it? Genevieve and I were married under a chuppah. Uh, Colin and Hannah were betrothed under a chuppah. And it says his glory is going to be that canopy, that wedding canopy over his people at Mount Zion. And then it goes on to say, there will be a shelter, there will be a sukkah to give shade 
from the heat by day and refuge and protection from the storm and the rain. So there's going to be a time when God is going to just literally, He's going to take care of His people and He's going to spread that sukkah over them and protect them from that hot Middle Eastern sun in the day and, and rain and storm winds. Wow. Interestingly enough, there's a Jewish tradition that uh, the Sukkot that the people of Israel lived in, when they came out of Egypt, they were, uh, the Hebrew term is Ananeha Kavod, like clouds of glory. Just think about that. The people of Israel coming into freedom and God spreading His clouds of glory over them as a Sukkah. And uh, He does that in our lives, doesn't He? He, he is doing that in our lives. Um, the other passage, we already read this, Zechariah 14. It says that uh, after some like cataclysmic events for the nations who have the gall, the nerve, to go up against Jerusalem in war, what happens? Like they get baked on their feet, you know, like exit them from the stage of world history. And uh, then what happens? It says, then it'll come about that uh, any who are left of all the nations that went up against Jerusalem, they'll be going up from year to year to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And uh, if they don't, they don't get any rain that year. National drought. Ouch, hey? So you know what? This is a picture of, like, the international future of the world. There's going to be a time when all nations are going to be going up to where? To Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And if they don't, it's not going to bode very well for them that year. I assume this will be in the Messianic era when our Savior comes back, when he when his throne is established in, in Jerusalem. Um, on a practical level... I think there may be something here for us. You know, um, we, we are praying for revival for the body of Christ. There's so many, so many of us that are praying for revival. And this is a good thing. We're praying, God, send your, send your life-giving spiritual rains, right? Revive our, revive our dry hearts. And uh, what does God say? He says, you know, when you, when you make Jerusalem central in your worldview, when uh, you let your heart go up to Jerusalem for the festival of booths, when you begin to factor the biblical feasts, into your expression of faith, I'm paraphrasing, but I believe this is, the, this is the meaning, then I will send the rains, I will send the life-giving rains, I will revive the dry hearts, I will make your faith come alive, I will bring the revival that you've been praying for. You know, God has ways, doesn't He? And His ways aren't like our ways. Think about the ark. You know, He is very specific, He said, if, you, if you're going to transport the ark, you, uh, you carry it on your shoulders, right? And you know, when they tried to do it another way, it just did not go very well. And God has ways through which He brings revival too. And one of those ways is when we begin to connect with his feasts. Yeah, that's what he's saying here. He will send those rains. So um, that's uh, something I believe that can apply on a very practical level. I have one personal element about this, and then we're going to learn about these, uh, these plants and what we're going to do with them. Um, we read in Psalm 31, verses 19 to 20. This is like a personal thing that each of us can kind of just take to our hearts. We read, How great is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, which you have wrought for those who take refuge in you before the sons of men. You hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of man. You keep them secretly in a sukkah from the strife of tongues. So, you know, we have this picture of a God who, uh, who has his sukkah. And maybe we could even just say on a literal level this week, right? And he's just saying, come to my secret place. Come and hide with me. Just come and experience my protection, my, my shelter. Come and feel how cozy it is to be close to me. That's what God is saying during the festival of Sukkot. It's like, uh, I don't know, do any of you, have any of you just ever kind of gone and you went and just kind of hid out? 
Maybe like maybe with your spouse or whatever. Maybe when you're recording or something or whatever. Or maybe just with just with God Himself. You know, you just kind of went to a secret place and you hid out. That's that's the idea behind Sukkot. There's a very romantic element there between us, the bride, and uh, and our Messiah. Hopefully, that will bring this upcoming week to life for us, set some overtones, give us a context for for why we're doing this stuff and uh, what it can mean to our hearts. So these willows, we went down to the river yesterday and we cut them at the riverbanks. Uh, we had to special order the palm and the myrtle. And uh, hey, <laughs> it's pretty easy to find these guys. And uh, here, here's, here's what we read. This is going to, you know the passage where people were shouting Hosanna and waving the palm branches? This is really going to bring this to life for you, right? This is the original context for this. Um, of course, that was at Passover. This is during Sukkot, but there, it's the same idea. In Leviticus 23.40, it says, Now, on the first day... What day is it today? The first day of Sukkot. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me. Take for yourselves the foliage of beautiful trees, palm branches, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And you shall rejoice before the Lord, before Yahweh your God, for seven days. Um... When you read the Hebrew for that, it's referring to these, these four species specifically. The willows, the myrtle, the hadassah in Hebrew, um, the, the palms. And then uh, it actually, like, what does it say in, in the NASB here? Um, like beautiful trees, the fruit of beautiful trees. And that's understood to be uh, something called an etrog in Israel. Etrog is like a citron. It looks a lot like this. We can't get etrog. Everybody say etrog. Isn't that a kind of a funny word? I think it's a funny Hebrew word. Anyway, we don't get this. So we get lemons instead. <laughs> we get citrons. This is pretty close. I mean, you know, these things are actually pretty impressive. You know, a tree full of lemons? Man, that's a pretty pretty beautiful. Um, so anyway, so we, we're going to grab these. And uh, these are these in Hebrew are called the four species, the arba minim. Can you say arba minim? Yeah, that's what these are. And I'm going to give you two interesting little, little traditional like Jewish teachings about this. This is the kind of thing that children really like. And uh, then we're going, to, we're going to learn what we're going to do with these things. Um, each one of these things represent a specific part of our body that we can use to like commit crimes against the Almighty or that we can use to glorify God. Yeah. And so I'm just, let's play a little game. And uh, you can just tell me what, uh, what each one of these looks like. Hmm, this looks like a good one. What does, here's the willow. What does this look like? Huh? Whoops, that's correct. See? Little smiley face. Happy. I picked one that was happy. Oh, I guess this could be unhappy too, depending on how you hold it, eh? But anyway, um, the willow, it represents our lips. So, you know, as we do some stuff with this, we can remember that this represents our speech, our, our organ of communication. And, uh, and, uh, this can represent, like, dedicating our communicative faculties to God, to glorify Him. Um, then we have the myrtle. Hmm, let's see, try and get a good one here for this. Has to be the perfect one. Ah, let's get this one here. Okay. I mean, you know, this isn't like the authoritative and objective interpretation, right? It's just kind of a fun thing. What, 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 um, what body part does this, could this look like or represent? That's right. Represents the eye. So uh, the myrtle can represent our, um, our, our organ of sight, our, our vision. 
You know, what do we, uh, what do we focus, where's our focus? Um, what do we hold in our vision? What do we, uh, what do we watch on TV? Yeah, or on the internet. That's what that represents. Um, then we have, uh, the palm. Haha. <laughs> You gotta be. You gotta. You gotta think a little bit for this one, maybe. But what does this represent? Hmm. No, not arms and legs. Although that would be cool. We could say maybe the arms and legs. No, not the hand. Although, yeah, like if you have a lot of fingers, <laughs> right? Yes. Traditionally, it represents your spine and your ribs. But I like the arms and the legs and the hands things too. So anyway, this represents our spine and ribs. I don't know. Like, it's kind of. I don't think much about glorifying God with my spine and ribs, actually. I mean, it is, it is your core. It represents your identity in some regards. I almost think I like the hands and feet thing better. What we do and where we go. I mean, maybe, maybe we'll make that our messianic tradition. That this will represent our, what? Bones? Yeah, okay. Dry bones, yeah. So it's got a broken rib here. I'm trying to hold it up and it keeps flopping over. Yeah. Okay. So we could say that that represents uh, something along those lines. And then we have... Yes, the etrog. <laughs> we'll just pretend this is an etrog, okay? Because I like the word etrog. <laughs> um, what does this represent? Actually, a real etrog looks a little more like this, but... Huh? The what? No, not the head. Thanks a lot. My head looks like a lemon. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Little keep on top too, see? <laughs> hmm? Nope, not the ears. Although you maybe. The heart. The heart, yes. Traditionally it represents your heart. I don't know, I've never looked at my heart, but maybe oh wait a minute. There are like are there different chambers in a lemon? Renetrog? You know, yeah, the heart does have orange. Yeah, sorry, the heart does have chambers. <laughs> the heart has oranges. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that's what these four things I represent. There's another interesting. Uh, there's another interesting interpretation here. Some of these plants have a taste, and some have a smell. You don't smell them just yet. Some of them have like ta'am is the Hebrew word, and some of them have reach, and some have both. And one of them has neither. Yeah, each one is different. And uh, in Hebrew, the concept of ta'am, or taste, it means like intelligence. And it represents uh, Torah study, like Bible study. Okay? So uh, everybody say, what is it? was like, taste, Torah study. Yeah. And that represents faith too, right? Because like, when, how does faith come? By hearing the Word of God, right? By Bible study. Yes, that's an integral element. So um, that's, what, that's what the taste represents. The smell represents our actions, our works, like James talked about works. Why? Because people can smell your actions even from a distance. And they're either fragrant or they're stinky. <laughs> people can smell your actions from a difference, whether they smell good or bad. And uh, so that represents... Uh, you, you know how James talked about faith and works and how there's a place for both, Right? So in this analogy, we're going to say that uh, in like our messianic drosh, our messianic uh, uh, metaphor of this, we're going to say that uh, taste represents faith and smell represents works or actions. Okay? So, one of these plants has 
neither taste nor smell. Let's figure out which one it is. You got it. The willow, that's correct. The willow neither tastes nor smells. So we're going to say that that, that that represents people who don't have faith in God and they don't have works either. Um, they're like just at the very starting point, right? Then we have one of these that smells but doesn't taste. Which one is that? The myrtle, that's correct. Does anyone know what uh, the Hebrew word for myrtle is? It's a pretty word. Hadassah. Do you remember, remember Esther? What was her Hebrew name? Yeah, her name was Myrtle. Her name was Hadassah. That's right. <laughs> um, okay, that's correct. So that would represent, what would that represent? People who have works but not faith. Now that's not a very good place to be in, isn't it? Sometimes, we, sometimes that can be like a little religious or something. Um, then one of these represents something that doesn't spell but does taste. And this is a little harder because you don't actually have the tasty thing on it. That, what? Yes, that's correct. This is a, from a palm, a date palm. So it has dates on it. So that represents something that you can taste but you can't smell. That represents people who have faith, which is a good place to be, but they're still like learning how to express that faith. I mean, this is just kind of a fun idea, right? It's not hard and fast. And then finally, we have something that represents people who have faith and works. Which one is that? Taste and smell. That's right. That's right. So, you know, in this little analogy, the etrog is the hero. We all want to be like lemons. <laughs> what? Faith and works what? Kind of hard to take. <laughs> and kind of hefty too, hey? Kind of, kind of bright. Yeah. Uh, that's just kind of a fun little, uh, little Jewish teaching about that can just imagine, like, literally for thousands of years, like, Jewish dads just sitting in with the children and showing them the four things and giving them a little lesson from it, you know? Who knows? It could have been that James himself, um, that his dad Joseph sat down and gave him that little lesson. I mean, we're talking about some ancient, ancient, um, ancient teachings here, hey? <laughs> okay. Um, does anyone think these are kind of beautiful? I think they're beautiful. Um, there's a Jewish tradition, it's mentioned in Shabbat 133b, where it says like, you know, make your observance of God's commandments beautiful. Don't just get by with the bare minimum. Like, really, uh, really adorn it, you know. Uh, make a beautiful lulav. This is called a lulav in Hebrew. Make a beautiful sukkah. I don't know about you, but I think we made a beautiful sukkah. I really felt good about that. So, you know, that's kind of the idea there. Um, okay, now there, there, there is a... There's a traditional way of doing these things for the next seven days. Uh, you know, in the, in the Bible, it just says to take them, right? So we all took them, so technically we did what God said, right right there. Isn't that kind of cool? It's like one of God's commands. It's a cool way of saying, I love Him. You know, God said, if you love me, do my commands. So it's like, yes, we're doing this because we love you, God. Um, there's a, there is a traditional way of handling these, though. Um, it's like, it's, it's a form of intercession. It's a form of prophetic declaration, and uh, we're going to learn about that. Yeah, this is something that, that was done in the, like in the second temple period. And then after the temple was destroyed, the Jewish people stopped doing it for a bit. And then they started doing it again as a memorial of the times. And you know, for those of us who are messianic, who believe in Yeshua the Messiah, we can say that this is a memorial of Messiah. This is something that he did, so it's something that we do also. How does that sound? Um, what, what's done is uh, it's waved in the four, direction, in the four directions, and, and we pray for God's salvation. Uh, 
And there's 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 an order. You do it south first, generally. I I'm a little disoriented. Which direction is south? Okay. So uh, here, why don't you stand up, and we'll just I'll just show you how you do this. Okay. So um, it's like wave to the south, and then it's uh, wave to the west. And then you kind of turn and face west. And I'm just showing you the traditional way. It doesn't mean you have to do this, right? But it's kind of nice to know because this is how they did things in in uh, in our Savior's time and still today. Wave to the west. And then it's wave to the north, and then it's wave to the east. And there's some traditional prayers for salvation that are done. And then, because God is Lord in heaven above and on the earth below, it's uh, waved up and it's waved down. I'm trying to, yeah, up and then down. And uh, actually, I have my own thing where I like to take it and wave it inwardly too. It's that seventh direction, the inner dimension. Because you know what? I need God's salvation. You know, when we pray that God will will save save Prince Albert, bring his salvation. You know, we can say, God, start with me. Please uh, bring your salvation in my life, you know, in my family, right? So that's kind of the idea. And uh, we're going to do that together at a, at a little point here. In, in, in the Second Temple era, I think you'll find this kind of cool, what they would do is they would go around the altar once a day, and they would wave their, their lulavs. This is called a lulav. Actually, a palm branch is a lulav. So that represents the whole thing. And they would pray for God's salvation. Um, one of those circuits around the altar is called a hakafah. Can we all say hakafah? Yeah. And then on the seventh day, the great day of the feast, they would go around seven times and pray for God's salvation. And it's a picture of Jericho, really. You know, encircling Jericho, representing the nations, and seeing the walls fall down. So it's like praying that the walls in our lives would fall down. The walls that we've built against God and His truth, the walls that have, we've, that have been built up in our lives between us and other people, walls of fear, walls of prejudice, uh, walls of whatever, right? All of those. It's like praying that they'll come down. And uh, that's kind of the idea behind that. Praying that the walls of the gate, like of, of Sheol and the gates of Sheol will come crashing down. That's the idea behind that. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.